Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. We got some faces that are here today that we've been missing because of the COVID virus, and we're glad to see a lot of you here today. Um, Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings. We thank you, Father, that you provide for us, you watch over us, you protect us. We thank you most of all that you rescued us and saved us through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that by your grace, you have given us the gift of salvation through faith. And you've given us the gift of your word and the spirit and one another. And so, Father, today we would ask, too, that the Holy Spirit would be guiding and directing every one of us. That we would be here to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son. And that you would... uh, by your word, stimulate us for more love of the brethren, but especially more love for you and your son. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, hopefully pretty soon we'll have our uh, music ministry back. You guys hear me okay? All right, good. I feel like I'm going deaf. Um, so we'll, we'll run. I'm not singing for you, if that's what you're expecting, so... I know. Uh, missionary organization this month, Chosen People Ministries, happened to get a letter from uh, the president, Mitch Glazer, which is about a very pressing subject that we all need to pay attention to and be prayerful about, and that is anti-Semitism, the, uh, uh, the hatred of the Jews in this country even, and around the world. So they, um, they would ask that we would all consider what Paul wrote, and I will read it in Romans 9, 3 to 5. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom the Christ comes according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So please keep in prayer the Jewish people. Um, consider using uh, whatever means at your disposal to support them. Um, provide prayer and gather people together for prayer if you can. They also have a free um, little booklet called Stop the Hate, which, is, which describes what's going on if you're curious and want to know about what's going on in a little more detail. So again, Chosen People Ministries, please uh, support them. But they would ask especially that you would support the Jewish people. Well, next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, and uh, we will uh, be also celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end. Um, Margie Pomeroy has prepared the little invite. Anybody have one of those? Yeah, it's a little invitation. There it is. Yeah, if you haven't got one, um, pick one up or two or three. The idea is, is to invite people in your life to come and be with us next Sunday, whether it's family or friends, whoever it might be. We would ask that you would make an effort to do that. All right, let's begin today. Uh, We are, of course, in the Gospel of John. Today we're going to start in John chapter 2, verse 12. John chapter 2, verse 12. This is really the beginning of his truly public ministry. And the reason is, is that he's going to go to a couple of places that will, from then on, will be associated with his ministry in two geographic areas. Now, he came from Galilee and He would have a big ministry in Galilee, although in the Gospel of John, we don't find so much about that. 
That's the other ones, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, so-called synoptic, because they look at it from the semi. By the way, John's material is 92% um, not found anywhere else in the Gospels. 90% of it is only in the Gospel of John. It gives you some idea. And John's Gospel focuses much, much more on Jesus' activities in Jerusalem. So we'll see the beginning of that today. But just to understand that he's now moving into his public ministry. And we will see already features that will, that will accelerate in terms of what his ministry was, especially in Jerusalem. So the title of today's message comes from John chapter 2. And that is, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house, the Father's house, will consume me. These words, of course, were spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ when he was at the temple in Jerusalem. Let's read together now, John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. After this, now remember this was the great miracle at the wedding feast at Cana. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So after that memorable wedding feast, Jesus left that small village of Cana, and he arrived at the town of Capernaum on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now here's our map this morning. I just want you to see a little bit about what we have here. Here's Cana. Here's here's Capernaum. Now Cana was probably about 600 to 1,000 feet above sea level. And I don't know if you know this, but there's something about the Sea of Galilee that's quite interesting. It's actually below sea level, quote, sea, the ocean. It's, in fact, it's like 600 feet below sea level, which is really unusual. So anytime you hear Capernaum, they're always going down. And when they go from Capernaum to, to Jerusalem, which was about 2,000 feet above sea level, it's not on this map, they're always going up. All right, just so you know, that's why they go down and go up. In any event, I want you to see that there's, this is the distance between Cana and Capernaum. This is where he'll head first today, and then he'll go down, uh, all the way down to Jerusalem later on. We'll see that. Now, it says in verse 12 that he went there with his brothers and his mother and disciples. That always raises a question for people, especially like if you're like I, growing up as Catholic, and we were taught that Mary stayed a virgin perpetually. Well, if you believe that, I got bad news for you. 
She didn't. All right? She had children, other children, naturally. I say that because after Jesus was born, supernaturally. So in other words, Mary and Joseph had other children, the way everybody has children. All right. After Jesus was born supernaturally. Now, we know that, by the way, um, because of this scripture. But also, he had four brothers and at least two sisters. I want you to see that quickly as we go this morning. Please turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. This, of course, isn't the most important thing you want to tell your Catholic friends or family, but it is something that is very interesting. By the way, being a former Catholic, when I really started to be on fire for God's word, I I regularly came across things that were the the exact opposite of what the Catholic Church taught. And maybe that we'll get into that again, maybe we won't. I've certainly said plenty about it in the past, but this is an example. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son, talking about Jesus? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Not only do we know he had brothers, we know their names. All right, by the way, James wrote the letter of James. Judas is Jude who wrote the letter of Jude. So here we have writers of two epistles right here. They were both half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice verse 56, and his sisters. He had at least two. He may have had more because it's in the plural. All right. So he had at least six siblings. All right. Which was not unusual in that day. Not unusual, of course, for me being an Irish because we always, except maybe this generation, they always had tons of people in there. Anyway. All right. So I just wanted to show that to you. Again, it's not the most important thing in the world, but I did want you to see it. All right. Let's go back to John chapter 2, verse 13 now. John chapter 2, verse 13. And we'll continue. John 13, John 2, chapter 13. Whoa. Let's start again. John chapter 2, verse 13. Because Jesus and his entourage did not stay in Capernaum for long. It would one day be the center of his ministry in Galilee, but he left it pretty quickly this time. We'll see why right now. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So he left Capernaum and went up to Jerusalem because of the feast of the Passover. And there were three feasts during the year where the Jewish men were expected to go from wherever they lived to Jerusalem. Okay? This is one of them, the Passover. The other two were, the, uh, were unleavened bread and the um, feast of... Uh, of booths, they call it. Um, so anyway, um, Passover was one of three major Jewish feasts that required the men to travel to Jerusalem. That's what Jesus was doing. Because it wasn't the first time he'd gone to Jerusalem. When he was 12 years old, he, he went to Jerusalem with his family, and then he stayed after his family left, which caused a lot of problems and a ruckus for the family at that time, but they all sorted it out. Even then, what did he say? I have to be about... My father's business. And we'll see, I hope you're reading John, you'll see it's totally right there that he was totally focused on his father throughout his ministry. And that tells you something. Everything he did, he ultimately did in light of the father, in view of the father, in understanding his father's will. 
This is going to be no exception. And we'll see that in a minute. So, again, the Passover, one of three feasts where Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Now, when that happened, there were people from a great distance that came to Jerusalem. Uh, Please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 9. We get a sense of exactly where these people came from, how far some of them traveled by a passage in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Okay? This, hap- this actually was at the Feast of Pentecost. It's when the, 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 the disciples would, re- would leave the upper room where they had been hiding, and they would, after having been, have the Spirit descend on them, they would then go on out publicly and preach in the gospel. And we'll notice who was there. Ask, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Parthians and Medes. Oh, and by the way, I have a map up here. It's kind of hard to see, but let me give you an orientation. Okay, this is Italy up over here. Okay, so it's quite a distance from Italy all the way down here to Jerusalem. All right, here's Parthia. Again, a far, a long, long distance away. Um, And anyway, you can see the different name. Parthians and Medes. Okay, they're from over here. And Elamites is Elam right there. We're studying some of these places in uh, the prophet Isaiah on Thursday evenings. Residents of Mesopotamia. Of course, that's right here. This is where today we have Iran and Iraq. Okay, Mesopotamia. Judea, of course, that was nearby right in here. And Cappadocia. Well, anyway, I'm not going to give you a geography lesson for sure, but you can see that all of this region of the Mediterranean and, and east of it, people, there were Jews living there that came to Jerusalem. Now, if you think about it, why would I tell you that? Well, because every one of these different places had their own currency, which we're going to see in a minute. And not only that, I want you to imagine back then when you were walking uh, in your travels, unless you were really rich and you had some kind of animal that you could sit on, but there, would, there was a need to have animals to sacrifice here in Jerusalem at the temple. Now, I want you to think of being somebody from Parthia. And there's some mountains you've got to travel and some desert. Can you imagine having to bring those sacrificial animals all that way? All right, so what happened? Well, the, 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 the people in the city of Jerusalem were industrious, and they realized that it would be a great convenience for all of their brethren coming from all these different countries if they could purchase the sacrificial animals, the oxen and the sheep and the doves, locally when they arrived in Jerusalem so they wouldn't have to transport them all the way from some of these far-flung areas. And again, they came from many different countries. They each had their own currency, and they needed to be converted into the currency, as we'll see, that they would need to pay the temple tax. And that's why the money changes were there. By the way, like money changes, always they would cost take a little fee, right? If you're going to, if you're going to, you go to a bank, maybe in Paris, and you're bringing dollars with you, and you need to convert them into francs, you know, you, you might get most of the value, but they'll take a little bit, right, so that they can make a profit. I'm sure that was going on, but there was nothing wrong with that either. See, there was nothing wrong with the, with the services that the, that the Jews in Jerusalem were providing their brethren from around the Mediterranean Sea. That was not be the issue. And again, I mentioned the coins because there was a temple tax. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy and Exodus. There was a temple tax that was due in Jerusalem every year. Again, all males over a certain age had to pay it. 
And since they were coming from all these different countries, they didn't have the right currency because there was a particular currency, I won't get into all the details, called Tyrian. And it was the best currency because it was the pure silver. And that's what the, what the priests required the temple tax to be paid with. So it's as if you went to, I don't know, what's the currency in Israel? I don't even know what they call it, but probably should. What is it? Oh, it's still the shekel. Okay. I, all right, well, well, we'll pretend it is. I don't know what it is today. But, but again, you're a pilgrim. You're going to Jerusalem, you know, and you have, you're coming from China. I don't think there are any. Yeah, there's Jews in almost every country, but maybe not China. But you're coming from the United States, and you have your dollars, but you need to pay the temple tax with a shekel, which is another currency. And so you needed to have it converted, and that's why the money changes were there. All right, now, I want to emphasize something about this. We have the sheep and the doves and the oxen, and there were, there were men who were selling those animals to the people that needed them for the sacrifices. You had the money changers, and they were providing that service. And here's the thing. There was absolutely nothing wrong with providing those services. A lot of people think that the issue was he was upset with the greed of the people. That had nothing to do with it. Because they were certainly within their rights. In fact, they again were helping out their brothers from other countries. There was nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with selling them the sheep or the oxen or the doves. Nothing wrong with taking their currency and converting it into the shekels. Nothing wrong with that. So what was the issue? Why would, why would the Lord Jesus Christ go through in, in this market, as it were, and just bust everything up and chase away all the animals and the people? Why would he do all that if the business they were conducting was not a problem? Though there's nothing wrong with providing these services, but here's the thing. They really could have conducted that business anywhere. Anywhere. Anywhere within the city of Jerusalem. In fact, at, a, at an earlier point in time, they had another location, not at the temple, where they, would, where they would sell the animals. So that, that would be the issue. See, while there was nothing wrong with providing those services, there was everything wrong with providing them within the temple precincts. That's the issue that would infuriate our Lord. Now, I want to show you the temple at this time. Now, there were several temples in the history of, of Israel. There was Solomon's temple which was the grandest at the time. And then there was a temple that they built when they came back from exile in Babylon, sometimes called the second temple. Um, and then there was this one. This one was not ordained by the Lord to be built. They just did it, okay? Not just, not they actually, but King Herod. He saw, he wanted something as magnificent as he was. And therefore he was motivated to build this glamour. It was a lot bigger than Solomon's temple. In any event, I want you to see, here's the Holy of Holies right here. This is where the animal sacrifices would have been done. Okay, they, would have been, they would have been prepared here. Um, I want you to see here, though, that there are these huge areas on either side okay, of this area. Now, in here, only Jews could be in here. The women were in the back. I won't get into that. But here, Gentiles could come and assemble. Well, it was here... That's where the bazaar was happening. That's where the markets were happening. That's where the men with their different stalls and tables were all hanging out. And it was, it was so many of them. I mean, think about it. I'm going to show you a picture in just a moment. If you had, say, thousands of Jews coming into Jerusalem, and they all needed sheep or oxen, think about the number of animals that would, look, that would be. Thousands of animals. I don't know if you've ever been to like a... Here's, a, here's an example of a modern-day example of a... Uh, market where they would trade in animals. I don't know. There's maybe 
within view, there might be 100, maybe not as many, but look at how much space it takes. And I want you to picture that going on in the temple. I want you to picture that. Not only that, but I want to go back. And um, if they understood who Jesus was when he came, the Messiah, they would have known something else. And that was that at the time the Messiah was coming, that he would be drawing not only Jews, but Gentiles from all over the world. And the Gentiles, if they were coming to the temple, they'd have to be in here. So you can, if, if there were any Gentiles, and there were, by the way, we know in the life of Jesus, there were Greeks, for example, that came. Um, also, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, never mind, I'm thinking about the, anyway, the, there's lots of Gentiles, even back when Jesus was alive. And imagine, imagine being one of those, and you come into the gate, and you start saying, oh, I can't go there. It's all clogged up with people selling animals. I'll go this way. Oh, I can't. In other words, they had nowhere to worship. They had nowhere to worship. So that was the real issue. That was the issue that would infuriate the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the house of the Lord, the house of the Father. Here's where the Lord chose to dwell with his people. And yet, it was supposed to be a place of contrition. I mean, they were bringing the animals at different times of the year in order to atone for sins. So it was a solemn place, right? It wasn't supposed to be a market and, and all of these animals and so forth. It was a place of worship, a place of prayer. But when the pilgrims from these different countries entered this te- temple area, they were greeted with the sights and the sounds and the smells of a livestock market. Picture it. I mean, picture that. Now, today, of course, we don't magnify the buildings where Christians gather to worship. That's not the issue anymore. Although you wouldn't know it by the largest Christian religion denominations. They still think. But just for kicks, right? Let's pretend Catholics are going to Rome, okay? And they're going there to meet the Pope, which they do. And there's this wide area where every, the Pope would come out once in a while and he'd bless him, you know. But imagine if they couldn't get into that area because there was all these animals being marketed. Who knows? Maybe that would go on in the future in, in Rome. I have no idea. But the point is, is that you can't really worship when there is the bleeding of sheep and the smells of the oxen and all of that stuff going on. All right. This was offensive and sacrilegious. And that was the issue. That was the issue. That's what infuriated. That's, what, that's how the zeal of the Lord was overflowing with anger. But you know what was even worse than the sacrilege itself? No one thought anything of it. Here of all these Jews gathering for the Feast of Passover. They're in the temple area and they're clueless about what the temple really is all about. I want you to think about that. By the way, we don't have to really go too far to really think of that today. I always think about um, people who put up Christmas trees and Christmas decorations and the, they have the crush, and they have no idea, actually, what's really being said. They don't understand that it's God in the flesh, for example. All right? So we shouldn't look too, too uh, condemningly at the Jews at that time. But in any event, Jesus did. He was thinking to themselves, look, this is all going on. And nobody even realizes the sacrilege, the offensive nature of this, how outrageous it was. The merchants certainly didn't. They had paid their money to get their stalls, and they were excited about the prospects of making some money. They weren't thinking about this as a place of worship. The, the people coming, 
They didn't realize, I mean, if you had come from a long distance and you had any idea of the, of the sanctity and the wonder of this place where God ordained that the, his people would meet with him, that there would be a holy of holies, which, by the way, was a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do on the cross, where they were to bring their animals as a form of worship and contrition. All right, the merchants didn't have any idea. The people coming, they had no problem with it. But here's the thing. Even the temple officials were overseeing it all. They were supposed to be the ones who protected and guarded and cherished and, and conducted the worship. They didn't even see a problem with it. Nobody saw a problem with it except Jesus. And God's son was enraged by that scene in his father's house. He was so enraged that he immediately took action. All right, now, we know, we, we know the story. We read it this morning. Here's just an illustration of it. But I, here's the point, you see. This is the tremendous temple area, the court of the Gentiles, and it's just teeming with people conducting business. And he would have none of it. And there's just a picture of the... By the way, it wasn't overly violent. Some people you know, see these movies and stuff, and it's really violent and everything. He, his objective was to just get that stuff out of there. He wasn't really interested in harming anybody. He wasn't really interested in making a big... By the way, it wasn't too much of a riot because... Let me go back for a minute here, if I can. If it had been too much of a riot, there was this place called the Antonia, Antonia Fortress. You know who were right? This is right on the temple grounds. You know who were in here? Roman soldiers. So if there really was a riot going on, you can bet that the Roman soldiers would have come in and quelled the riot. There was no riot. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody. He was just so overwhelmed with, with anger at the fact that these things would be going on in his father's house that he was going to get rid of it all, and he did. And he did. John 2.15. John 2.15. And he made a scourge of cords. You needed that. Think about it. You have this big oxen and you've got to get it to move. What are you going to do? Ask it nicely? Right, you needed something to get the animal out of there. A lot of animals out of there. All right. A scourge of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple. All with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he, to those who were selling the doves, it's interesting. They were the smallest, you know, they took up the least space, right? I mean, you could picture a thousand doves and not necessarily think of it as this overwhelming, you know, uh, 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 activity. But even them, and he spoke to them. He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. The issue was his father's house. By the way... He did the right thing, and no right-thinking Jew could have disagreed. Anybody who had the slightest understanding of the purpose of the temple would have been applauding Jesus for what he did. And then look at John 2.17, explanation. His disciples who were there, one only knows what they were thinking about. Their, their attitude towards these, the, the business being conducted, we don't know, we're not told. But when they saw Jesus overwhelmed with anger, they, they, the, the, a passage from scriptures came to mind. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. These words were written by David. He wrote this psalm. It was the 69th psalm. And by him, by, by the... You can go there now, actually. The passage was in Psalm 69. Psalm 69 was a messianic psalm. 
What does that mean? It means it was talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Now, they didn't know that. When David wrote it, I mean, he did know that one of his descendants would come upon the throne. But he was really writing about his own experience. But, he, but actually, the Holy Spirit had something else in mind. He was having David write from his experience, but he was really writing about the one who would come. Please turn to Psalm chapter 69, verse 7. This is the scripture that came to the minds of the disciples, who, by the way, were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. We've already seen that. You know, this wasn't, they, these men were picked because they did understand the scriptures, and they would be able to be a good witness to all the things that Jesus would do that actually pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. So they knew the scriptures. And this is the one that came to mind when they saw Jesus um, throwing down the tables and getting the animals out of there. They saw he was overwhelmed with zeal, and they realized why. Look at John chapter, I mean, Psalm 69, verse 7. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. This is Jesus talking to his father. This is a prayer. Now David would have written this for some reason, talking about the fact that he was the king and he stood up for the things of the Lord. But I want you to read this in light of the cross, verse 7. Because for your sake, Jesus ultimately went to the cross for the sake of the father. In a sense, we just benefit from his obedience to the will of the Father, to go to the cross so that he would vindicate his, vindicate his Father's righteousness. That was overwhelming motivation for him to go. We just, by grace, we're included in that work. All right? But just never remember, primary, the Father, because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. The beatings that he would take before he would go to the cross... I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. After, they, after his family were with him in Capernaum, from then forward, there was more and more um, tension in the family. His brothers didn't believe in him. At times, his mother didn't even understand why he was doing what he was doing. For zeal, here it is, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. See, see the, so many of the Jews in that day um, were, were rejecting the Lord. They had no idea what was expected. They didn't really follow the Torah anymore. By their actions, they demonstrated that they didn't recognize the Lord when he came. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And again, David wrote this psalm, King David. But Jesus embodied it. He embodied it. And again, this was a passionate prayer to his father. By the way, Psalm 69, a messianic psalm, is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other psalm except one. Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Uh, that's when he, when he says... Uh, Sit, sit, sit by my side while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's, that one expression is found seven times in the New Testament. In any event, Psalm 69 is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. For example, please go to Psalm 69.21. Psalm 69.21. And... This is an event that 
is not documented in the Old Testament as something that David actually experienced. There are, you see in this psalm a, a transition, and you start to understand that he's not writing about himself really. Look at Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-one. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Vinegar to drink. I want you to compare that now to John chapter 19, verse 28. For my thirst, he was thirsty, they gave me vinegar to drink. Look at John chapter 19, verse 28. Okay, this is, this is a powerful demonstration, by the way, we're about to go, that Psalm 69 was talking about Jesus Christ. And in particular, his, what he would happen to him at the cross. Look at John chapter 19, verse 28. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. John 19, 28. Jesus is now at, on the cross. He's about to have his spirit be, be removed from his body and go back to the Father. Look at, look at verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And the scripture he fulfilled was Psalm 69, verse 21. But then, he goes, then, then John goes on, a jar full of sour wine, that's vinegar, was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it up to his mouth. For my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And then verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In other words, Psalm 69, 21 is actually prophesying, if I could put it that way, the last event that would occur before Jesus would have died and his spirit would go back to the Father. Definitely, Psalm 69 was a messianic psalm. It was brought to the mind of the disciples because of the zeal that Jesus had for his father's house. They saw the zeal that day. But there's something else that was also included in that verse back in Psalm 69, verse 9. And uh, if you go back now to John 2, all right, we'll see it's quoted. When it's quoted, this is included. Go back now, please, to John chapter 2, verse 17. John chapter 2, verse 17. Again, it is written. Quotation from Psalm 69.9. Please go to John chapter 2, verse 18. John 2.18. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house. That's what they saw that day. His zeal for his father's house. But then look at the last part. Will consume me. Now, for years when I read that, I just thought, man, he was overwhelmed with zeal. It consumed him, right? That's not what it means. That's not what it means. You see, they saw his zeal that day. But what would happen would be that zeal. Now, this is the first place where there's some confrontation in Jesus' public ministry. Okay? When he was in Cana, there was nobody there opposing him. There was nobody there that wanted to condemn him or question him. Why are you doing what you're doing? But when he went to Jerusalem, then there was confrontation. That confrontation would build and build and build as we proceed through the Gospel of John. 
that zeal that he displayed that day in the temple put in motion a series of confrontations in Jerusalem that would eventually lead to his death. The biggest confrontation of all after he raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, and then you move into chapter 12, and then you get to the point where he is then taken in the garden, illegal trials, Pilate condemned him to the cross, and he died. But all of that was set in motion in chapter 2. That's what it means that zeal for his house will consume me. Consume me. It would completely consume him in his death. All right, let's continue. John chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Jews said to him, What sign? Now that word should be familiar to us already. Haven't we talked about signs a few times already? A miracle with a message. Okay. In fact, this whole gospel, this section of it, is a series of signs that the Lord ordained so that people would realize who Jesus was, the Messiah, the Son of God. But now his opponents are using it in another way. In another way. They weren't interested, by the way, in the meaning. They wanted a sign. They wanted a miracle so that they would say, ah, he's got some credibility for doing what he's doing. Okay. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? You see, their authority was challenged. You see, they're the ones that had set up all that was going on in the temple. They're the ones that were blind to the fact that this was a desecration. And so Jesus comes along and he asserts his authority and he says, these got to go. Now, if you're, if you're managing the temple and somebody comes out of nowhere and disrupts everything that's going on in the temple that you thought you were in charge of, you know, you might feel a little bit offended yourself that somebody was challenging your authority. You ever in a situation where the person in authority is dead wrong, but because he's challenged, he just gets angry and more adamant and more stubborn? That's what was going on here. They were basically saying, how do you have the right? What gives you the right to do this? That's what they were actually asking. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? The Jewish leaders were not concerned. Oops. They weren't concerned about what he did. They weren't offended by the fact that he got, the, he got those animals out of there. That wasn't the issue. You know what the issue was for them? Authority. They challenged his authority to do it. And you see, this is where you see the conflict, the confrontation. Because Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was the Messiah. By the way, he knew that he was the creator. He knew that he was coming to fulfill everything that the temple was all about, ultimately. And yet, they didn't know, they didn't understand that at all. So they had no clue about how he could have that authority, even though he knew he had it. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. The Messiah would come to the temple. And so they, they didn't at all associate that. So they were like, how does he have the authority? Does he have the right to do what he's doing? I mean, it would be as if, I don't know why I'm packing, picking on the Catholics today, but I will. It would be as if the Pope was celebrating a Mass in the Vatican. And then somebody comes along and goes in there and takes the candles away and you know, goes up to the altar and says, you can't do this anymore. Can you picture that? What a scene, right? Well, who could do that, right? Only somebody who had more authority than the Pope. Now, of course, we don't see the Pope as having any authority at all. But if you're a Catholic, you would have said, he's got the authority. Who's this guy coming in? Now, that's kind of the sense in which this was going on. 
The Jewish leaders wanted him to show his credentials. What gives you the right to do this? Now, what would convince them that he had the right to do it? What sign do you show us? What sign do you show us? They wanted a miracle. I mean, who wouldn't? But, but this would happen again and again and again, you know. And the leaders would be offended, upset about what he did. And they would say, you better give us a sign right now. In other words, they were saying, show us a miracle. Show us a miracle. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Many times, if you go through the Gospels, you will see them asking Jesus to perform a miraculous sign. And you know what's interesting? In all those times when they asked, he never gave them one. Not one time did he perform a miracle. Now, think about that for a minute. If somebody had said to the Son of God, perform a miracle, and because of that person he did it, can you see how he was now subjecting himself to the person? And he said, there's no way I'm going to do this on command by you. I'm not, I'm not a traveling show, right? I only, and we've seen this already, I only perform miracles with a meaning at my father's beck and call, not yours. Okay? He never did. He never at once. Please, let's see one in Matthew chapter 28, chapter 12, verse 38. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Here's an example of when... In this case, the scribes and Pharisees asked him for a sign. Again, they were expecting a miracle. That's what they wanted. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, We want to see a sign from you. On on command. You have to do what we say. Give us a sign. Did he give him one? No. Verse 39. But he answered and said to them. I love this. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. I put them in in their place right away, didn't I? Jesus would say a very similar thing. Later on in in John, when he was about to heal the nobleman's son, you know, he would say, unless you see signs and miracles, you just simply won't believe. You know, yes, he gave them the signs out of his grace, okay? But they should never expect them. The same thing with us. If he wants to do something amazing, then we understand it's by his grace. But we should never expect it or demand it of the Lord. In fact, at the end, he would say to Thomas, what? Because you've seen, you know, the miracle of the resurrection embodied on his hands, really, and this in his side. Because you've seen, you believe. But what comes after that? You know it. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. You see it? Not a sign anymore, but simply believe on the word of God. That's what he was looking for. But that didn't happen. Notice again, an evil, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it. But the sign of Jonah the prophet. It is written. But not only Jonah the prophet. But let's see what, he, what Jonah the prophet wrote. Verse 40. When just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster. So will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he was actually pointing to a sign. But it wouldn't be something that he would have done um, that day in front of the Pharisees and the scribes. He was pointing forward to the greatest sign of all. 
his death and his resurrection from the dead. That's the same thing that he would say in a, essentially to the, uh, to the Pharisees that were asking for a sign in the temple. They asked him for a sign, and we'll see this in a second. They, he gave him a riddle instead. I love it. Okay, let's go there now. Go back to John chapter 2, verse 19. John chapter 2, verse 19. The scribes and the Pharisees asked him for a sign. And he pointed to the sign of Jonah being in the, in the three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. Pointing to the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the grave. Okay. Look at John 2.19. When, the, when they asked for a sign in the temple that day to prove his authority to, to, to get the animals out of there and to overturn the tables, this is what he said. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Hmm. Now, if he had actually done that, that would have been quite a sign, don't you think? But again, he wasn't going to do that that day either. But in their, in their mind, can you imagine what they were thinking? They, there was this magnificent temple. We saw a picture of it. Herod, by the way, we're going to find out that 46 years they were at it. And counting, by the way. It was under construction at the time that Jesus was there. It wouldn't be finished until A.D. 67 or so. Which, by the way, was right before the Romans would come in and totally destroy it. Okay, so they were saying, this magnificent temple, you know, uh, if we destroy it, you're going to build it in three days? Okay, so they, it was, of course, something that Jesus wasn't talking about the building, but we'll see that in a minute. So he gave them a riddle. Instead of a sign, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Again, the literal temple that was before him that day, that they were in, under construction for 46 years. In other words, it started in B.C. and kept going through all the way to 60, I think it's 63 or 66. Anyway, in the 60s A.D., ultimately. But at the point at which Jesus was in the temple that day, it had been under construction already for 46 years. But he wasn't talking about that building. He was talking about his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. His body. He was pointing to the same thing that he told the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew. Right? In Matthew, at that point, he was talking about being in the grave for three days and three nights. Here, he is pointing about the fact that he would die on the cross and his resurrection would occur on the third day. Destroy this temple, my body, and I will raise it up in three days. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they didn't understand that. They took him literally. We'll see these misunderstandings again and again in the Gospel of John, if you've been reading, and please do, again and again, read the Gospel through from start to finish. Take a few chapters a day if you need to, because we'll see this again and again and again. He would be talking about bread, meaning he was the bread of life, and they were talking about something you'd eat. That would happen again and again. He would talk about living water to the woman at the well, and she says, great, I don't have to keep lugging all this water back. But he wasn't talking about that water. He was talking about the living water of the Holy Spirit. 
This happened again and again and again. We're going to see it again right next time in chapter 3 when Jesus encounters another Jewish leader, this time by the name of Nicodemus. This one will be about a birth. He'll take it literally. Jesus will be pointing to something much greater. All right, John chapter 20, um, John chapter 2, verse 21. John chapter 2, verse 21. Actually, 20. I want you to see 20. I want to, I've already talked about it, but I want you to see it. The fact that they didn't get it. They thought he was talking literally. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Can you see the irony of a sort that's here? That, again, they didn't understand who he was, and they really thought that he was talking about building a building that took 46 years in three days. They didn't understand the meaning behind it, you see. They wanted a sign. It's supposed to be a miracle with a message. The most important part of that's the message. But they didn't hear the message that day. All they did was hear the fact that this building couldn't possibly be built again in three days. All right, verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. He had said what? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That tells you that even the disciples didn't get the riddle when he said it here in the temple. They wouldn't really, they wouldn't have that aha moment until after he rose from the dead. And then they said, oh, that three days, you know. Otherwise, it was just something that was like, why did he say that? I don't understand why he said that. That's really, you know, a mystery. What is he talking about? It's a riddle. I don't get it. Okay. When he was raised from the dead, verse 22, then his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture. We're not told exactly what scripture here, but it was clearly something from the Old Testament. And it was clearly something having to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, there are lots of scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about especially the death, but also some that talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? As a matter of fact, Psalm 69, where we've been already, does exactly that. And there are others as well. Isaiah chapter 53 is another example of Old Testament passage that points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they believe the word which Jesus had spoken also. He was speaking of the temple of his body. In other words, he was was saying, you guys understand what the temple in Jerusalem is. You ought to. You ought to know, for example, that's that's where your animal sacrifices were conducted to atone for the sins of the people, which didn't mean forgiveness, but it only meant a covering, right? A covering for the people so that they would continue to be able to be with the Lord in his presence and serve him and so forth. But the temple of his body would be the greater temple, the greatest temple. By the way, this is what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's all about Jesus being superior to everything in the religion of Judaism. Everything. You want a priest? How about Jesus, the ultimate high priest? You want a sacrifice of the animals? The ultimate sacrifice is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the book of Hebrews. Okay, But this is setting that up. It's basically saying, here's something from the old the old covenant, if you want to put it that way, the sacrifices, the Jewish, it was ritual. Now here's the new coming, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He would say in chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan, would say, you know, i got a question for you. We worship on that mountain over there, and you say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And he would say, what? Now, now if he were a good Jew that was focused on the Old Covenant, he would say, yes, you're, you're definitely right about that. You should be with us in Jerusalem at the temple. But that's not what he said. He said, a day is coming, and now is, when those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, think about it. You're in the temple, and now somebody comes along and says, forget all that. It's an issue of the spirit and the truth. What's truly being worshipped? What's truly happening? And then take away the building, put in there the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw a little bit of this when John was baptizing. Because John was baptizing and saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Right? Well, they would have expected that to have been done in Jerusalem. But he didn't. He went out in the wilderness by the river Jordan to do it. Something new is happening. Something new is dawning. Now, you have all those sacrifices. But the fact of the matter was, all those sacrifices over all those years and centuries, think of it. All the animals that went to the temple, all the blood that was spilled of those animals, that could not take away one sin. Not one. Not one. So there's the temple, but it never really accomplished what was really ultimately needed, which was redemption of all our sins. It never did that. Not that temple, but this one. The body of Jesus did that. That's why it's the greater temple. That's why he could talk about the temple of his body being more important than that building. Though they didn't understand him at the time. All right, please turn to Hebrews, speaking of. Please turn to Hebrews 10. If you ever come across a Jewish person who actually knows the Old Testament scriptures, take them to the book of Hebrews. It'll blow their mind. I mean, there's so much about it. If they thought about it today, for example, just one example, the Jewish people still celebrate Passover today, right? Well, where do they do it? They usually do it in their home or in a synagogue. Where are they supposed to do it? In the temple in Jerusalem. They should have made a pilgrimage. I mean, at least the Muslims are consistent. They make the pilgrimage every year to Mecca, you see. But the Jewish people don't go to Jerusalem anymore. And yet that's what the scriptures say they were supposed to do. What, that, what does that tell you? Well, the animal sacrifices aren't being done anymore, and that's the way it should be because the greatest sacrifice has already been made. The book of Hebrews has loads of these things. talks about an Old Testament figure. And then talks about the fulfillment. Moses and the fulfillment. The high priest and the fulfillment. And so forth. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. After saying above, he had just quoted the scripture, sacrifices, this is Old Testament, listen to this, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, ultimately. Now, this was, of course, said, in the Old Testament, fulfilled with the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they must have wondered, though, when they heard these things in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Wait a minute. Sacrifices? You told us to. Offerings? You told us to. Whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin? You have not desired? 
What is that all about? It shouldn't stimulate you to question. Doesn't it automatically uh, set things up for something else to come? Something else has to come if this, isn't, if this is the situation with sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings. Nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. The law came through Moses. Remember John chapter 1? But grace and truth are realized through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jewish scriptures themselves say that something has to be coming on the scene in order to fulfill and supplant what was going on in the temple. Verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. That's an Old Testament quotation too. But it's clearly, clearly talking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to do His will, which ultimately His body would be on the cross, and that would be this perfect sacrifice, and the temple would no longer be needed. Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. Die to the law, alive to the Spirit. That's what Christ came to accomplish. He takes away the first, that's the first covenant. That's the whole Mosaic system. That was everything that was going on in the temple. He takes it away in order to establish the second. Okay, and in context, it'll be the new covenant to the Jewish people. But actually, it's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He takes away the first in order to establish the second, his body. And then we see it clearly in verse 10. By this will, God the Father's will, we have been sanctified. Through the offering of the body. The body. Destroy this temple. His body. And he will, he will raise it up in three days. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's why there was no more temple needed. That's why the veil of temple was torn in two from top to bottom after he died on the cross. Because the temple was no longer needed. Because all about it had been fulfilled perfectly in the person of Christ. In the body of Christ on the cross. So the animal sacrifices in the Holy of Holies did not take away sins. The body of Jesus did. Here's another thing. The glory of the Lord was associated with the temple. It came in and the glory of the Lord, they would see it. Okay, They wouldn't see it, but the high priest would. The glory of the Lord was in the Holy of Holies. But at a certain point in time, the, the glory of the Lord left the temple. The temple did not fulfill all of the, the, all of the design, the idea that this would be the place where the Lord would meet with His people, where His glory would be present at all times. That was the purpose of it. But you see, the temple on earth was really just a, a replica, if you will. It's kind of like a, it's a, you build something because you've got something greater that you're showing. You might build a toy car. But you're actually talking about a real one. You know what I'm saying? That's what the temple was ultimately. Why? Because there was a temple in heaven, holy, above the clouds, where the Jesus Christ would be the perfect sacrifice, and he would offer his blood at the temple in heaven. All right? So clearly, the temple on earth left something to be desired. And, and, and this illustration of that was when the Jewish people totally rejected the Lord, were in rebellion, done some horrible, horrible things in the temple. And the the Lord came and he took them into exile in Babylon. And then Ezekiel has this vision of what was happening 
in Jerusalem as they were in Babylon. And the glory of the Lord left that temple and that building. I want you to see that. Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 18. This temple made of hands was not the ultimate. Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 18. May have taken 46 years, but the greater temple would be, would be raised up in three days, the body of Jesus. Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. The temple and the people of the temple fell short, badly short. And the illustration of that, the reality of that, meant that the glory of the Lord could no longer be there. And again, that has to anticipate something has to come in the future so that the glory of the Lord would be reestablished in a temple. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14. Whoops. Yeah. This should be very familiar. We were just there. Those of you who are keeping up with the, with the series. John chapter 1, verse 14. The glory of the Lord left the building. That meant that there had to be something else. Another place where the glory of the Lord would now rest. And there'd be, the people would have the presence of the Lord. There was a place where they could come and meet with their Lord, but it couldn't be the building anymore. Look in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh, body, and dwelt among us. Dwelt. The, the glory of the Lord dwelt again. And we saw his glory. There it is. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's a superior temple than the building. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that body, that temple, the glory of the Lord will always dwell there. Always forevermore. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the city of the New Jerusalem will be lighted up with the glory of the Lamb. That's a superior temple. That's why he could talk about his body on the day when the, when the Jews, the leaders, the temple leaders, were asking him for a sign. Okay. John 2.22. And we'll wrap up this morning. John 2.22. He had just written in 21, John wrote, he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's where we got that great counterpoint between the building and the body. Notice what he says, though, writes in verse 22. So, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. Then, they remembered when he was risen from the dead. They said to themselves, wait a minute, he did talk about three days. He did talk about, it was a temple that he said, if you destroy that, he'll raise it in three days. But what really happened was that they destroyed his body. And he was raised in three days. And they finally saw it. They had some help, which I'll show you in a minute. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said that. And they believed the scripture. 
the scripture that pointed to the death and resurrection of Christ and the word which Jesus had spoken. And they put it together. They said, okay, we've got the scriptures now. We see that it points to the death and resurrection. We see what he said. Now we understand it pointed to the death and resurrection. Here's the real temple. Here's the real body. Okay. The spirit, though, would be the one that would ultimately teach them. In John chapter 14, verse 26, you won't go there, but you can write down the scripture. John 14, 26, I will read it to you in the interest of time. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. You see, we get to look at these scriptures now. We get, like, I don't know, I hope when you read that, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. If you've been in the word of God for a while, I hope it instantly went, oh, of course, he's talking about the temple of his body. He's talking about his death and resurrection. But why? Why do we have that insight and capability? It's because the Holy Spirit brings things to our remembrance, just like he did with the disciples. The Spirit would teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them. They had help. What things? What were the things that the, the Lord would have the Spirit bring to remembrance when he talked about his death and resurrection? Well, I want you to look at Luke chapter 24, verse 25, as we close today. Please look at Luke chapter 24, verse 25. Something that he said, Jesus said, after he was raised from the dead. Luke 24, 25. This was a tremendous day. This was the same day he rose from the dead. This was after Mary Magdalene went to the empty tomb where Peter and John raced one another and peered in and believed. Later on that day, there was another tremendous event. It happened on a road to Emmaus. And we're going to read it here. Luke 24, 25. Now what was going on was they were telling him, well, there was, some, there was some incredible events recently in Jerusalem. We thought that the king would be coming in Jesus, but they killed him. Of course, before that, Jesus had said, what things? As if he had no idea. And it was him that went through them all. In any event, Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, notice what he said, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. There are a lot of foolish men. There are a lot of slow hearts to believe in all that the prophets spoken about the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he kind of nails it, encapsulates it. Verse 26, was it not necessary according to the prophets, the scriptures? Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Didn't you understand that they would destroy the temple of my body and that it would be raised up on the third day? that I would need to suffer for the sins of the world, and that I would ultimately enter into the, his, my glory with the Father, 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And we can say to ourselves, man, if I'd only been there that day, if I could only have heard it from the lips of the Lord himself, hey, this is what the prophet Isaiah said about me. Hey, this is what Psalm 22 said about me. All throughout the scriptures, the book of Genesis talked about me. Nehemiah, Ezra, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all talked about me. And he conducted a seminar on the Old Testament scriptures and how they pointed to him. And we could say to ourselves, why couldn't I have been there? Well, blessed are those who have not heard, have not heard, have not seen, and yet believe. See, we actually get all of that now. 
<laughs> in, the, in the epistles particularly, but in this Bible in the New Testament, the Gospels too, it tells us all the things in the scriptures that pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with Moses and Genesis all the way through the prophet of Malachi. We get it too. Only we get it in a superior way because the Holy Spirit indwells us. Okay, they had the Lord Jesus, but they were still... They were still hearing words, but they couldn't necessarily make sense of them. Well, we have the Holy Spirit, and when we hear the words of the Old Testament, and we see the fulfillment, and he puts it all together for us. But once they heard these things, then they wrote them down. And thank God for that. Thank God that after Peter was taught about the, how Moses and the prophets pointed to Jesus, and how, and how the Apostle John himself did, and then later on, Jesus would come back and appear to Paul, and give, that, give him all the revelation. They all wrote it down for us, actually, ultimately, so that we who did not see any of it could also believe. Let's close today in John chapter 17, verse 20. John 17, 20. We're going to see the absolute vital importance of the book you have in front of you. And why it is that we gather together every week, to hear from it. Look at John chapter seven, verse 17, verse 20. This is our Lord speaking with his Father. Okay, this is a prayer from Jesus to his Father. And he says in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He, he is asking that they would see his, his glory and his love. He was asking that they would be protected from the evil in the world. And he says, I'm not just asking for these, these guys that are with me tonight, the disciples. He says, I'm also asking, Father, for all those who believe in me through their word. Through their word. That gives you, that's why, that's why you know, every, every part of this book is inspired. The epistles are the words that came from the apostles that talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, they'll believe in me too, but it'll be through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And here's why, ultimately, so that the world may believe that you sent me. All right, let's close today. Father, Father, we just thank you this morning for opening our hearts and our eyes to these tremendous truths in your word in the Gospel of John, in the Psalms, in the Epistles, Book of Revelation. We just uh, ask, Father, that as we gather these things in our heart and the Holy Spirit continues to make sense and build, that like the, like the disciples that walk with him through the events of the Gospel of John, we too may be, be strengthened and enriched and blown away by all the truth about your Son. And that we would understand the absolute vital importance of having this message brought out and told to the world so that they too could believe and be a member of the Upson's body. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Keep reading the Gospel of John. Keep reading the Gospel of John. Bible study every week. This Thursday is no exception. 630 on Thursday, March 25th, on Skype. If you have questions today about the message, about the gospel, about anything in the Word of God, I invite you to just email me. Whoa, what's going on? I'm sure I'm doing this, but I don't know what's going on.
<laughs> anyway, pastor at lbible.org. P-A-S-T-O-R. People in Rhode Island, I've said this too many times, they, would, they think pasta is how you say the title, right? They would not be able to get the email right. But anyway, P-A-S-T-O-R at lbible.org. Heavenly Father, as we look forward to celebrating the resurrection of your son next Sunday, help us, Father, to understand what it meant, to understand that the gospel of your son involves his death and resurrection. And that just like the disciples, who after they understood his resurrection, understood so much more, that we too would have the understanding of how much the resurrection has opened up for us and for the world. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Please invite people next Sunday. Please invite them to be with us, just to be with us and hear the good news of the gospel. Okay, you're dismissed.